Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla, the founder of Applicant Lab. Check it out. It's a really great site. Maria is all over it in exciting and vibrant video. <laughs> and Caroline Diarty Edwards, the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former director of admissions at NCOD. This past week, we had some really interesting news from Harvard. It was sort of expected. Harvard Business School announced that its next two incoming classes of MBAs will be its largest ever, roughly around 1,000 each. That's up from a typical size class of about 930. If you're thinking, wow, that's great news because it's going to increase my chances of getting in, forget about it. Basically, those additional seats will be absorbed by the international applicants who deferred in this past year. There were over 200 of them. They will probably be evenly distributed over the next two classes. So, you know, the admit rate shouldn't be changing as a result of that. It probably will change because of a surge in applications that we all expect. But what does it really take to get into Harvard? What does it take to really get into Stanford? These are obviously two of the most difficult schools to get into. The applicant pools are highly competitive. The admit rate at Stanford in a typical year is about 6 to 7%. And at Harvard, it's about 11 to 12%. So I'm going to ask my two experts, what do you see in the, in the characteristics of the people you work with who tend to get into Harvard and Stanford? And what makes them miss? Maria? Well, I think that if I had to boil it down, and it's a pretty complex question with a complex answer, but if I had to boil it down into a simple answer, it would be impact. I think that showing and demonstrating that you are someone who not just does the bare minimum, but who goes above and beyond to excel academically, to excel at your job, to excel in the community, and to really make a, a genuine impact, I think that that's sort of the underlying thread that I that I see. And Caroline? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think you have to be a high achiever across the board, right? Sometimes candidates think that because they've, they're doing brilliantly in their career, it's okay that they didn't get a very good GPA and their GMAT's not fantastic. And, you know, there just isn't that leeway in the applicant pool and the evaluation for, for these very, very top schools. So you have to be able to demonstrate excellence in all dimensions, unfortunately. So, you know, academics, professional, community extracurriculars, you know, you have to have a good story to tell across all of those things. Because other candidates, if you don't, other candidates will. And, you know, the, the, the schools are just in that position to be able to cherry pick. And it's really all about the competition. I mean, every single person in the applicant pool is competing on some level against the other people in the pool. And in fact, they're competing in a segmented way. For example, I think the consultants compete with each other. The investment bankers can compete with each other. The international applicants, depending on where they come from, compete with each other. Isn't that right? Yes, that is true. And, you know, when I was evaluating files at, at INSEAD, you know, we would group them into, you know, demographic profiles and it could be by country or by sector or by sector and country so that you're comparing apples with apples and looking at, you know, of your management consultants from 
you know, from Lebanon, who stands out, who's the best <laughs> of that group, right? Because if you're reviewing a, a very mixed bunch of applicants at one time, it's very difficult to, to make sure that you're taking the best of each sort of different profile. So the schools do split them down like that before reviewing. And yes, yeah, so if you're in a big bucket and, you know, you're, you're in a coming from investment banking or you're coming from an engineering background with, you know, a lot of people applying with a, with a similar background, then, then you know, they, they have to be able to weed people out very quickly, frankly. So, you know, unfortunately, someone who doesn't have, you know, a, a very strong resume probably you know, the, the admissions file reader is not going to spend necessarily a huge amount of time reading their essays if, you know, the, the, the basic facts of the profile aren't strong. Yeah, exactly. Now, how good are the two of you at predicting that a candidate that you're working with will in fact get into Harvard or Stanford? How often are you wrong? <laughs> I'll, I'll say I, I don't think any of us is ever correct fully um, but I think for me it's easier to predict Harvard than Stanford I think Stanford goes for sort of the the rock stars but Stanford in my experience is also occasionally has a few like curveballs and goes for people with more sort of esoteric or eccentric backgrounds so I have a, I have a harder time with Stanford Plus, Harvard has a bigger class, so right, they, exactly. They have, they have well, more latitude. <laughs> that yeah, also helps they have my more case. <laughs> but that's interesting that you would say that Stanford goes for the more well eccentric, <laughs> also maybe eclectic backgrounds. Maybe Why do you think that's so? I mean, what is it about Stanford that makes them tilt that way? I think it's because they are very serious about they take their motto very seriously, right? Change lives, change organizations, change the world. And the people that I've worked with with the more eclectic, that's the word I was thinking of. Thank you. I was like, esoteric, no, etc. Uh, the people with the more eclectic backgrounds do get in, have in fact started to make their mark on the world in their own way, in their own industry or their own little, you know, their little area of passion. And so I think that it's as long, you know, it's, it's less about, some of the more standard elite things and more about like, wow, this person started their own hot sauce company. And it's, you know, that's pretty crazy. But look at how much they've grown it and look at how big it's grown and look at how passionate they are about organic hot sauce. And so it I, you know, I think that they, they look for people who really are on in the on their way to start changing the world. What about credentials? Okay, when you when you examine the classes who get in, Okay, the top feeder schools at Harvard, Harvard, Penn, Stanford, Yale, Princeton, Duke, Dartmouth, Cornell, Notre Dame, and Brown. Stanford, it's Harvard, surprise, surprise, Stanford, Yale, Penn, Columbia, Brown, Dartmouth, Princeton, Duke, and Georgetown. Do you have a chance if you come from a public university? It's an interesting question, and I think that's the most striking data that comes out of the the study that my colleague Matt Simmons did, the deep dives into the classes of Harvard and Stanford that that you've covered, John, that actually there's a pretty short list of schools that feed a huge chunk of these classes. But on the other hand, you know, it's it's hard to know because we also don't have the data on the applicant pool. So we don't know, you know, how representative are those admits or are those students of the people who are actually applying to the schools. I suspect that the pool is probably more diverse than that. But, you know, it, it, it is still the case that an Ivy League, Ivy League education or, you know, one of the very top schools 
in the US or internationally is a fantastic credential to have. And, and that does stand you in very good stead when you're applying for jobs, right? And so that helps you get, get great work experience before you apply to business school. And, you know, it certainly speaks to your academic strength, especially if you have a high GPA. I mean, the GPAs at these schools at Harvard and Stanford are also very high, right? 3.7 average for Stanford. So, you know, they're not taking the people from these top schools who have sort of coasted along and partied for four years. They're taking the people who did really apply themselves. True. Um, and, and, you know, really made the most of that education. But it, it almost feels like, and you're right, w- without knowing the denominator of the people in the actual pool, we only know who was enrolled, not even admitted. What you find is that, you know, 30.4% of the students at Stanford actually have an Ivy League education. At Harvard, it's 23.2%. But what's interesting when you go through the numbers is you'll find multiple admits from prestigious universities, as you might expect. And then when it comes to a public university, unless it's a public Ivy like a Michigan or UVA Darden or at uh, UT Austin, what you find is onesies and twosies from public universities and multiple admits from the more prestigious schools, which which makes you think, okay, if, if you're applying from the University of Oklahoma, you probably have to be top of class. And if you're applying from Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, I, I don't want to pick on Princeton because, of course... <laughs> Maria is an undergraduate from Princeton. Who got Take into Harvard? Away, man. I'll join in. <laughs> but you kind of have to be the best of the best from Oklahoma, don't you? Yeah, I think I think you do. But I think it's more of like an apples, you know, I think Caroline said before that one of the goals is to do a more apples to apples comparison. And I think there may be fairly or unfairly a perception that maybe the academics at Oklahoma may not have been quite as intensive or as competitive as they were at a Yale. Um, yes. So and so I think the the same level of academic horsepower, intellectual horsepower, you know, that they would say, well, like, OK, well, we would expect this person to do much better in this environment than perhaps they would have done if they would have gone someplace a little more sharp elbowed. True. And also it gets down to how selective an institution is, whether it's a university or an employer, the more highly selected it is, frankly, I think the more faith admissions people in MBA offices put in that credential. Would you agree, Caroline? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it just says a lot about you, right? If you've got into one of those Ivy League schools or you've worked at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, it, it just gives you that rubber stamp that the admissions office knows that you've been through somebody else's incredibly rigorous <laughs> admissions procedure and you got through that. So that's already, it's already a leg up. True. And since you mentioned employers there, well, and let me point out that at uh, 82 of the class of 2020 at Harvard, that's about 930 people, 82 of them had worked at McKinsey, 55 at BCG, 52 at Bain, 44 at Goldman Sachs, 27 at Deloitte, Morgan Stanley is next with 26, the U.S. Navy is next at 16, and Accenture is 17. At Stanford, it's McKinsey number one, BCG number two, Bain number three, Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Bain Capital. Awfully familiar names. (laughs) <laughs> and all highly selective, 
very elite global companies or organizations. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if the correlation with the, if, if it's, is it more about we, we are looking for people who have the Ivy League degree or is it more, we're looking for people who have a certain work experience background and it just so happens that the Ivy League schools are the feeder schools into those industries and into those work experiences that we that we think are valuable for our class to have. And therefore, I want, I just wonder if it's, more, you know, which one is slightly more important. I would think that work experience is slightly more important. I think if somebody comes from a University of Oklahoma and somehow is able to get their way into a job at Goldman Sachs, I think that person is on more even footing than maybe someone who went to Harvard for undergrad and then ended up, you know, not doing anything super impressive with their yeah. career. Yeah. Also, to, you know, I, I think what those brand names, either at the university or employer level, indicate is it gives an admissions officer greater assurance that they're not going to make an admissions mistake. Because already these people have, have passed through two incredibly fine screens and filters that suggest, okay, if they pass through our screen after passing through Goldman Sachs and Yale, well, you know, we can pretty much rest assured we're not going to have a problem with that person. I mean, isn't, isn't there some of that in there in these decisions? That, that, that's very true. And I, I think, I mean, the admissions office may also argue that, you know, that the people that they're looking for who are intellectually curious, you know, incredibly smart, high achieving, those people are more likely to have gone to an Ivy League school or to have worked at one of these blue chip firms. Right? So it's not necessarily that they're discriminating against other candidates, but the qualities that they're looking for are more likely to, you know, those people are more likely to have gone to those previous institutions because of the, you know, the, the, because of the, the, the qualities that they have and, and the fit. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's difficult to blame the admissions office for, for, you know, for, for giving credence to, to those credentials. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're, it, it's very difficult to know to what extent that actually has a bias on their decision making. And are they overlooking other candidates who, you know, also have those fantastic qualities, but maybe haven't been to those, you know, big brand name universities and employers? What do you have to do if you are not from a big brand name employer or university? What other parts of your application do you have to shine, be superb to actually get in? I, I think, I mean, if you, if you haven't been to a top undergraduate institution, then hopefully you've, you've, at least you got a great GPA while you were there and you get a good GMAT, right? So you show that you've got the intellectual ability to do well at the school and then you know, I, I agree with Maria that the, the professional experience is super important, right? What have you done over the last few years since you graduated? What impact have you had? How rapidly have you progressed in your career? You know, even if you haven't been working at one of the top firms, perhaps you have a fantastic story to tell about the impact that you've had and the difference that you've made. And, I, you know, I, I also think it's it's true that in some cases, you know, the schools are looking for more than just the the classic, you know, great undergrad plus plus great blue chip firm. I mean, we, we've certainly seen with some clients that the ones who are more uh, are very successful at getting into those two schools, 
um, are often people who, you know, perhaps they started at McKinsey or they started at Goldman and did a couple of years there, there but then they've gone on to do something else. Um, so they've got that fantastic blue chip credential, but they've also got another story that they can tell about the startup that they did, or you know, maybe they've just you know they've shifted into a very different career that relates to their long term career vision, and just gives them a great story to tell that enables them to stand out and just tell a different story versus the next guy who is still you know plodding away at, at Goldman. Yeah, that's really true because. Actually, even though at Harvard, for example, in the class of 2020, you had 82 McKinsey people, only 41 of them came direct from McKinsey. So half actually mm. went on and did something different, Yeah, uh, which is really interesting. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I do think that's significant because, I mean, these, these people are pretty at a pretty early stage in their career. It's not like they've been working for 10 years and did five years at McKinsey and then went to do something else, right? They've generally only been working for sort of three or four years. So they've made quite a quick move out of McKinsey or, or um, you know, the MBB firm. So, so I, I do think there is, there is a pattern there. Yeah, and, and the pattern even exists at Stanford, and it's almost exactly the same. So 29 people from McKinsey, but 14 direct. Half, almost exactly the same as Harvard, mm. oddly. Yeah. I think a lot of people who start in consulting often end up in finance, and a lot of people who are in finance end up in consulting. And that seems to be a very powerful mix if you can go to two elite firms and have it on your resume when you apply to Harvard or Stanford. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It sort of supercharges your resume. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sure every year there are people who, you know, you kind of think, oh man, this is a layup. This is a no brainer. Harvard has to take them. Stanford has to take them. They're exceptional in every way. And then lo and behold, they get turned down. Isn't that true? Yes. And I I think if I had to say, what is it that goes wrong? I think it's some level of arrogance comes through. I think if you are a layup candidate on paper, but you act like you're a layup candidate, then I think that's a huge turnoff. And I think admissions committees can pick up on that, whether it's, you know, maybe something, the way that you refer to yourself in an essay that may be kind of a little too self-congratulatory, or perhaps a recommender says something like, oh, she's great, but, you know, whoo, she thinks really highly of herself. And sometimes that's a problem with other people, <laughs> right? I, I, I would have to say that I think that that's the difference. For, for someone who on paper looks like a slam dunk and then doesn't get in, that would be, that's usually my guess. Italians call that the kiss of death. (laughs) (laughs) And I can say that because I'm Italian. So uh, (laughs) you're you're right. I mean, uh, particularly that's really can be found in an interview. I mean, if you get to the hurdle where you have an admissions interview and you come off as a Mm know-it-all and you don't have that sort of humble personality, you're going to get shot down. You just are because, you know, they don't want people like that in the class. Or maybe they want people like that in the class, but you got to hide it. Yeah, I think that's more. <laughs> people, like that get in. people like that get in, but they're able to fake it for half an hour. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> How is it that some people get into Stanford, which accepts fewer applicants, but then apply to Harvard and don't get in? You know, people always scratch their heads about that. And that's not only true for Stanford and Harvard, but there are people who get into Harvard and Stanford 
and they can't get into Kellogg or Chicago Booth or Columbia or Dartmouth. How can that even be remotely possible? How do you make sense of that? Well, the schools are looking for slightly different things. And, you know, it depends on so many variables, including how they do in the interviews, just saying, and, the, you know, the chemistry with the interviewer, etc. So that doesn't necessarily run the same way for one school as it does with another. So, uh, you know, and I also think that it's it's true that Harvard will look at candidates and if they think that this this candidate is brilliant, but, you know, I think she's a better fit for the school on the other side of the coast, on the on the other coast, then then they will perhaps take a pass. Right. Um, if they think that, you know, they know that a lot of people are applying to both Harvard and Stanford. And if they think this candidate is brilliant, but but it probably makes more sense for them to go to Stanford rather than Harvard, then Harvard might not be very keen on, on accepting that person, even if, you know, otherwise it's an absolutely brilliant candidate. You know, these schools are all trying to maintain their yield. That's very important to them. So if they get the feeling that this, this candidate, you know, their heart may not be completely set on coming to Harvard or coming to Stanford, then, you know, regardless of how brilliant they are, they, they will just pass on to the next candidate. Now, but doesn't it also suggest a certain randomness? I mean, there's something you can't control for, and that is, you know, one person, one reader of uh, an application just feels differently. Maybe they got up on the wrong side of the bed one day, uh, and they happen to read your application first. I mean, isn't yeah. there that as well? Because after all, the pool is composed of so many exceptional people that at some level, you can't really decide between Joe and Mary because their stats, everything is off the charts. And, and so you have to make a selection. And that selection may be more a function of pulling a rabbit out of a hat or a, 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 a number out of a hat, rather, than it is any really, truly uh, defining characteristic that separates one candidate from another. Maria? Yeah, absolutely. You know, right? If, if uh, like Caroline was saying, you put people in buckets, and if you've got five people from the McKinsey office in London all applying, and they've all worked on, you know, they all have similar years of experience, they've all had similar leadership roles, they've all have, you know, at, at a certain point, you got You got to pick on. You know, you want two of them or whatever, but you got to pick on something. Um, and so, at a certain point, it may come down to, I don't want to say randomness, but it may come down to something quite minor. That, yeah, crafting the class yeah. because you don't want to have an excess of of any one type of person in your class. You're aiming for diversity. So at some point in the application process, you can get actually candidates who are better than those you've already admitted, but you have too many of those you admitted, so you can't take the person who is actually better sure. uh, mm-hmm. um, in a later round uh, than the person already in. Yeah. So there is an element of luck involved. And that's why I think, you know, for some candidates, it just makes sense to reapply, right? If they don't get in the first time, if you're a strong candidate, then do consider reapplying because plenty of people do reapply and get in. um, And the schools just can't take all of the fantastic candidates they've got. So, you know, it it may come down to it was just your unlucky day (laughs) when the fire reader was reviewing your application. And maybe next time round, you know, things will, the wind will be in your direction. That's true. And, I, and Caroline, you've, you've said this before, and we've written about this at Poets and Quants. I think it's something like 10% of every Harvard Business School class is actually composed of reapplicants. Yeah. 
So that's yeah. like 93, 95 people every single year yeah, had already huge. applied and been rejected. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, we've had clients who've applied three times and then finally got in. Three times? Yeah. Three times a charm, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, lightning round to finish this off for both of you. What are the three most important boxes to check if you want to have a chance of getting into Harvard and Stanford? What's number one? What's number two? What's number three? Maria? Oh, gosh. Um, I think, like I said before, I think the number one thing is demonstrating impact. I think the second thing is is having a genuine passion for something to to portray yourself as someone who is, you know, I went to the Ivy League school because I'm generally, I'm genuinely passionate about learning. I went to work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation because I'm genuinely passionate about helping people as opposed to being someone who simply jumps through the hoops. And I think the the third one is uh, don't be a jerk. Don't, don't be a overtly jerk. be a jerk. If you are a jerk, overtly, yeah. to, you can be a jerk. Just don't let uh, anyone know you're a jerk. Have someone, have someone edit that out of your essay and practice real hard. Now, Maria, having have, having gone to Harvard, I'm assuming you're speaking with some experience. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay. <laughs> Caroline, you're three. Yeah, so we, you, I mean, you've got to have great academic credentials, whether it's your undergrad or your GMAT or both, right? I mean, that's just you've got to tick that box. You've got to show you've, you know, you're you're on a very strong professional path, and you know you're going to achieve great things in the future. And then I think you need to tie it all together with a great story. You know, both Harvard and Stanford do give you quite a bit of space to tell your personal story, which not all schools do. And so, you know, take that opportunity to, to capture the spark their interest in, in you and want to get to know you more. I, th- I think that, you know, that story element can really help people to stand out. That's all really good advice for everyone who's getting your applications ready for the round two deadline, which will be here before you know it. I mean, it's a little more than a month away uh, at Harvard and Stanford. Of course, Stanford has a round three as well. But all these points are really super good. And also, I think that they're not meant to tell people uh, that they have no chance at all if they don't meet every single one of these checkboxes, because there are people who get in uh, to both these programs. They, they, you know, they shoot that Hail Mary pass and my goodness, it works. But you are, def- you know, defying the odds <laughs> uh, if you don't have one of these six things or or some of the other aspects that we talked about in our podcast today. So to all of you who are going to hit submit on an application to Stanford or Harvard this year, good luck. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Maria and Caroline on Business Casual.